Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Galatians chapter 5. Over the past few months, going back into the spring, there have been some well-respected pastors and even a pastor friend of mine who has preached in this church and written many books have fallen into major sin. They've fallen into adultery And they had to resign from their positions because of moral failure. And it's been very difficult for me to see these men of God that I respect fall into sin because they've had very fruitful ministries. But I want to ask you a question. How do you respond when you hear about the downfall of another Christian? It's really a gut check to find out what bubbles to the surface when you hear about the sin of another person that's their downfall. Is the first thing that pops into your mind judgment? Is the first thing that pops into your mind a little bit of inner joy because they got what's coming to them? Is the first thing that pops into your mind, that's never going to happen to me. I'm never going to do that. Is your first thought to judge and criticize? Or is your first thought to try to understand and forgive? Do you find yourself wanting to shun that person? Or do you want to embrace that person? Christians have become very good at shooting our own wounded, especially when it comes to sin. So as we look at the text this morning, I want us to do a little bit of review before we jump into Galatians chapter 6. Paul has been addressing all throughout the book of Galatians two dangers. Two dangers that we as Christians fall prey to. Two dangers that churches fall prey to. The first danger is legalism. Legalism is that whole idea where you try to win brownie points with God by trying to be better than others. You spiritually compare yourself to others with man-made rules. You, You try to earn God's favor by doing good things. Legalism. That's a danger. But there's another danger that's just as as dangerous, and that's license or laxness. That's the attitude that, well, because I'm saved by grace and I've got my free ticket to heaven, I can live however I want. There there is no regard for God's rules. I really love to sin. God really loves to forgive. This is a wonderful relationship. Let's keep it up until I get caught. Paul's been addressing both of those. But then Paul has been talking about freedom and how we use our freedom. So go back to Galatians chapter 5 for a moment in verse 13 and 14. And this is how Paul tells us to use our freedom in Christ. Not to serve ourselves, but look at what he says. Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. Serve your neighbor. Paul's been talking about the works of the flesh over against the fruit of the Spirit. And last week we talked about what it means to walk in step with the Spirit, what it means to be led by the Spirit. And we talked about how it's, it's, we, we took Psalm 119 as a parallel passage and said it's letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. And so as we get to chapter 6, Paul's going to get very practical. Paul's going to get very practical as there, there are practical ways you live out your Christianity in being led by the Spirit, in walking in step with the Spirit, in, in bearing the fruit of the Spirit. What does it look like? He's going to get very practical. So let's read together chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, and we're going to explore these this morning. Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Bear, I'm, I'm sorry, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul gives us six very practical ways that we can walk in step with the Spirit, that we can be led by the Spirit. Now, I want to begin by stating that all of these practical issues that he gives us in the original language are commands. They're commands to be obeyed. They're in the present tense, which means they're commands to be obeyed on an ongoing basis. So what I'm about to share with you this morning are non-negotiable. These are things you don't have a choice whether you're going to obey them or not. They're direct commands from Scripture. And so you can't walk out of here pleading ignorance or pleading that you didn't know. These are things that you and I as Christians are obligated to do. They're commands by God himself. So we need to take them very seriously. But I also want to remind you that we in no way can keep these commands without the power of the Holy Spirit. Any attempt for you to try these in your own flesh through self-effort are going to fail. You and I need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the presence of the Holy Spirit. We need to be led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit needs to be front and center in empowering us to obey these. And I just want to remind you of what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You've been given everything you need to live the Christian life. You've been given all things through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So I want you to think about the metaphors Paul's been using so far in chapter 5 about the Spirit. He's talked about the fruit of the Spirit. These are qualities that the Holy Spirit births in you that you demonstrate. There's nine of them. The fruit of the Spirit. That's a metaphor. Another metaphor he's been talking about is somewhat of a path that you walk along. You walk in the Spirit. You walk in step with the Spirit. You, you follow the Spirit, sort of like a path. In chapter 6, he's going to introduce a new metaphor, a field in which you sow. Sow to the Holy Spirit. And the overall question you've got to ask as we look at these things is, are you sowing the seeds of love. A love for Jesus, a love for others. Remember, love is the first attribute on the list of the holy, uh, the fruit of the Spirit. So all these practical commands all boil down to love, how you love. And they really center in humility, too, humility and love. A soft heart towards God, a soft heart towards others. So let's examine these practical ways you can walk in step with the Spirit or you can show evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. So here's the first one. Restore those who have sinned through humble church discipline. Restore those who've sinned through humble church discipline. Now notice what he says in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression. Now, Paul doesn't define for us what the sin is, but it's something that you're caught in. Now, this could be any type of sin, but probably what Paul's talking about is some type of sin that has really bad consequences, some sin that has major fallout, some sin that has a far-reaching impact and has affected a lot of people. And what Paul says is that fallen brother, that fallen sister, that person who's been caught in sin needs to be restored by those who are spiritual. Now, who are the spiritual? Is this some super class of Christians who have arrived at this great um, level of spiritual maturity and it's only the select few that's supposed to restore him? There's the super class of spiritual Christians. Is that what Paul's talking about? No, look at the context of what he's just talked about in chapter 5. Those who are spiritual are those who are demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. Those that are walking in step with the Spirit. Those that are spiritually minded. And so what are we to do when any brother or sister falls into any type of sin? We're to restore that person. A very interesting word in the original language, restore. Oftentimes it was used to mend a broken bone. Like to set a bone that was broken back into its place. Or fishing nets that were had holes in them to to mend fishing nets. That word means to put back to what was right, to put back in a state of health, to restore, to put back to its former condition. It's important. This is called church discipline. If a brother or sister sins, we do not kick that person to the curb. We don't gossip about that person. We don't treat that person with disdain. And we don't abandon them. We don't say to them, serves them right. He or she got what's coming to him. That'll teach him a lesson. On the other side, we don't just brush it over and say, well, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. You confront it. 
you address it. You rebuke if necessary. You don't brush it under the carpet. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Sometimes you need to hear the truth, and that may hurt. You know, there's a lot of ways you can treat somebody that sins in church life. I've seen it. You can isolate them. You can gossip about them. You can backstab, and you can abandon them. And you can isolate them. And you can write them off. And that is not the process that Jesus defines for us in Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives us the steps, the due process, if you will. Matthew 18, 15 through 17, listen to the steps Jesus gives and how you address sin in the life of a church or if somebody sins against you, if anybody's caught in any transgression. Here's what Jesus says. If your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You go to him alone. You go to her alone. You address it. You talk about it. And if he listens to you, you've gained a brother. If he repents, if they apologize, if there's forgiveness, no harm, no foul, there's no need to go on. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the entire church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. There comes those steps in the process where eventually maybe somebody has to reach that final point where they're excommunicated because they haven't repented. But Jesus gives steps along the way. And one of the things that we never want to do in addressing one another is we never want to be vindictive. We never want to be punitive or we're just punishing them. Paul's very clear in how we're supposed to do this. Notice what he says. We should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We don't restore others in a spirit of pride, self-righteousness, vindictiveness. Because here's the issue. And you know this. If it were not for the restraining grace of God in your life, that could be you. You just as easily could fall into any sin. You're just as susceptible as anybody. So we're very quick to judge others that fall into sin, and we don't look at our own selves. And that's why Paul adds verse, uh, the, the second half of the verse there. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted you got to keep watching on yourself. Yes, restore the brother. Yes, go through church discipline. Yes, address the issue. But keep watching on yourself because it could happen to you just as easily. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Aim for restoration. We need to aim for restoration, and we need to keep watch on ourselves. Go back to chapter 5, verse 26. There's no chapter divisions in the original language. It's all one document. So when we have, like, verses and chapters, that's not in the original language. So verse 26, there's no real chapter break there in the original language. But look at verse 26 of chapter 5, right leading up to chapter 6. Let us not become conceited. Provoking one another, envying one another. Let us not become conceited. A very interesting word there, conceited. It comes from two words in the original language, empty and glory. That's why the King James calls it vainglory. 
It's this attitude that you have that everything revolves around me. I'm the center of the universe. Nothing is ever going to happen to me. I'm beyond rebuke. I'm beyond sinning. Everything is about me. And Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you restore. You don't punish. You don't gossip. You don't talk behind their back. You don't shun. You address. You confront. You restore. And you do it in a spirit of gentleness. And you keep watch on yourself because it could very easily happen to you. So that's command number one. We should restore those who've fallen with humble church discipline, with with humility, with gentleness. Okay, what's the second practical application Paul gives us here? Secondly, bear one another's burdens through Christ-like love. Bear one another's burdens. Okay, you see this in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens. Now, what's a burden? A burden in that original language was like a huge stone that you'd have to put on your back and carry for long distances. It's something that you and I cannot handle alone. It's a huge burden. And here's the reality. Every single one of us from time to time will have a burden that we were never meant to carry it alone. Now, what's a burden? A burden can be anything that weighs down on you. It could be a physical ailment. It could be a struggling marriage. It could be a wayward child. It could be a crisis at work. It could be a bout of depression. It could be spiritual warfare. It could be a financial setback. Anything that's very, very difficult for you to handle alone. And here's what I've seen in northeastern Colorado. And maybe maybe all across America. I just think we see it here. There's this false idea we've bought into of this rugged individualism. I can handle it. Let me ask you a question. How many times have you said this or heard somebody say, I don't want to be a burden? I've heard that as a pastor all the time. I can't believe how many people say that to me. Pastor, I don't want to be a burden. Well, you've just broken this rule here because the Bible says, bear one another's burdens. Bear those burdens. You know, it cuts both ways. Here's the way that some people have this attitude when it comes to burdens. There are some people that look at a person with a burden and they think to themselves, that person's a baby. That person's incompetent. That person can't handle it. And you don't want to lower yourself to carry the burden or inconvenience yourself because you think that person should just be able to handle it. That's one attitude you can have. The other attitude you could have is you never, ever admit that you need help or that you need somebody to come along. And so you bear the burden yourself And then you get bitter when nobody comes and helps you because you really needed the help, but you didn't ask for the help, but you get mad when people didn't come and help you. You ever been there before? If you can't say amen, you better say ouch. What does Jesus say? This is the fulfilling of the law of Christ. Now, what's the law of Christ? We've talked about this. The law of Christ is summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. What did Jesus tell us in John 13, 34? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I've loved you, you're to love one another. Now here's the thing about burden bearing in the life of a church. Two things have got to happen. Number one, 
you've got to be able to communicate your burden. Other people are not mind readers where they just know what your burdens are. You may think everybody knows what your burden is because you posted it on Facebook and you've talked about it and it's, it's your world. But if you don't communicate your burdens to other people, they can't carry that. And the second thing is, is that if somebody shares with you a burden, you need to be able to bear that with them. You need to be able to be inconvenienced. You need to be able to step up to the plate and say, you know what, I'm going to walk through this with you. I'm going to bear this burden with you. You're not meant to bear this alone. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you have gone through a burden and nobody walked through it with you? And you wish somebody was there to bear that burden. The Bible is very clear. One of the ways you sow a seed of love is you bear one another's burdens. How well are you doing at this? Okay, let's look at the third practical application point. Examine yourself in light of the judgment seat of Christ. Examine yourself. Now, you may think, well, where, where is this coming from? Well, look at verse 3. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Okay, so don't think that you're beyond bearing a burden. Don't think you're beyond falling. It may happen to you one day. Verse 4, but let each one test, test his own work. Examine yourself. Test your work. Test yourself in light of the fruit of the Spirit, in light of the Scriptures. Do you take time for honest self-evaluation to see if you're bearing fruit? Notice what Paul does not say. If it's in your translation, you've got a wrong translation if it says this. Compare yourself to others and see how much better you're doing than they are. Is that what Paul says? Make a list of all the people in your life that are failing miserably and pat yourself on the back that you're not like them. What does Paul say? Test your own work. Now, verse 5 might seem a little bit confusing here. What does verse 5 say? Each one will have to bear his own load. Well, that sounds contradictory, Paul. You just told me to bear, bear one another's burdens in, in verse 2, and then in verse 5 you say, I have to bear my own load. What's, which one is it, Paul? Let me give you some help here. Paul uses two different words in the original language to discuss this. The word in verse 2 for burden is that huge, like, boulder-type thing that you cannot handle yourself. The word for load in verse 5 was used of a soldier's knapsack or a backpack, something that you can easily carry on your back that's yours and belongs to you. Here's the deal. When you stand before God on the day of judgment, you're only going to be wearing your backpack. You're not going to be wearing anybody else's. And so what Paul is saying here is that all of us are going to face the day of judgment. Now, it's not going to be a day of judgment as Christians where we're going to be judged for our sins, okay? All of our sins have been judged in Jesus when he died on the cross. He bore God's wrath. He bore our condemnation. We will never, ever be condemned. We will never be held accountable for those sins, past, present, and future. All of our sins are paid for. We have free access to heaven, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. But the Bible does say that each one will stand before the judgment and have our works evaluated to receive our rewards. Now, I don't know how that all works, but I do know that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 through 14, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, 
Each man's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that has anyone has built on the foundation survives, he shall receive a reward. Paul's talking about works here, the works that you do, the good works that you do. Are you taking time to evaluate yourself to see if you are doing good works, not as a way to earn your salvation? You're going to get to heaven through faith alone and Christ alone. But are you examining yourself? I think one of the dangers of living in 21st century world that we live in, that, that we're so busy, we don't take time to stop and do some self-evaluation. When was the last time you sat down and just evaluated your life? I know it's hard for me. You get so busy, and even when you sit down and try to evaluate, what are you thinking about? All the things you got to do. Let me challenge you this week. Take some time to sit down, you and God alone, however long it takes you. Maybe it's two minutes, maybe it's 20 minutes, maybe it's a couple hours. I don't know. And just examine yourself. Ask questions about yourself. Assess yourself. All right, number four. This is where it gets a little tricky. Here's number four. Provide financially for those who teach you in the faith. And you're like, what? Provide financially for those who teach you in the faith. Look at verse six. Let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Okay, so let the one who's taught. That's where we get our word catechism, the one who's catechized, the one who's discipled, the one who is, is taught the fundamentals of the faith. You know, in a few weeks, we're going to have a Discovering Emmanuel class. It's our newcomers class where we talk about what we believe and we talk about our belief system. And, and so one of the things that's important for us as Emmanuel is that we're always training you in what we believe. From, from the youngest child all the way up to our growth groups and our, our small groups, we want you to be taught the word of God. But Paul says here, share all good things. So the one who's taught is to share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, what is Paul talking about? What does it mean to share all good things? Paul is talking about financially supporting ministers, financially supporting pastors who proclaim the gospel. Now, this is in the Bible. This is probably the first instance in the Bible where Paul affirms paying ministers. But in 1 Corinthians 9.14... Paul says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. There are some people like myself who get their living off of preaching the gospel, full-time Christian ministry. Paul also says in 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. What Paul's saying is those who labor to the point of exhaustion, those who are preaching and teaching that make their living off of it, they're worthy of double honor. The, the worker deserves his wages. Now, it's interesting here. What does Paul say in verse 6? Let the one who's taught the word, notice he doesn't say, let the one who taught the word pay his teacher. He says share. It's koinonia. Oftentimes, when we think of the word koinonia, we often think of the word fellowship. Go look at the word koinonia in the Bible. Almost every time the word koinonia shows up, it's in context to financial matters, sharing of your resources, sharing your finances. So Paul's saying it like this way. When you give of your tithes and your offerings, you're not just paying the staff's salary. My salary, Pastor Andrew's salary, Doug gets paid, who leads worship, 
Um, our ministry assistants get paid, our custodian, those that get paid. You're not just paying a salary. Paul's saying you're sharing in ministry. So the next time you give a tithe and offering, don't just think, yeah, I'm just doing this to pay the staff. No, you're doing this to share in the advancement of the gospel. You're sharing in the gospel. Now, I just want to draw your attention because I have to. Our budget giving as a church is falling a little bit behind. I think we're about 14000 behind budget giving. Again, I don't know who gives and who gives what. All I know is, I, is that um, we have an annual church budget of what we as a church voted on as far as what we need to, to operate, and um, for some reason we're falling behind. So I'm just asking you, if you're not tithing, if you're not giving, if you're not financially um, supporting the work of the church, to pray about where you are in that process. Um, I think the measure, of, the measure of maturity of a person who's bearing the fruit of the Spirit, who's walking in step with the Spirit... A great place to start to evaluate yourself and walking in the Spirit is look at your bank account. Where are your priorities? Where are you spending your money? Are you being obedient in this area? All right, let's go on to number five. So to the Spirit instead of to the flesh. Verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Okay, God is not mocked. It's an interesting word. It's the only time this word shows up. It means to turn your nose up in disgust at God. God is not mocked. You can't fool God. Because there is an unstoppable, irrefutable law of the universe. You know what this is. All of you that are farmers, you know what the irrefutable law is. If you plant corn, you reap strawberries, right? What happens? If you plant corn seeds, what's going to grow? Hopefully corn. There's reaping and sowing that God has built into the universe, into the agricultural world in which we live. It's an irrefutable law. You plant something, you, reap some, or you, you, you sow something, you're going to reap it. Now, Paul is taking this principle to the spiritual realm. Is basically saying what you reap spiritually, you will sow. In other words, the consequences may not be immediate, but they're eventually going to come up. Job chapter 4, verse 8 says, As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. God has set up the universe, basically his moral universe, this way. There are natural consequences of sinning that will happen in your life just because God's built it that way. Now, sometimes the consequences could be God's direct hand of judgment where fire comes down from heaven, but most often it's more just the built-in way things happen. You do things that are sinful, you deal with the consequences and the fallout of those sinful actions. Let me let, let, me let you listen to the old adage. You've probably heard this. Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, Reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Now, what is Paul saying here? Verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. Remember when Pastor Andrew preached a few weeks ago, he talked about crucifying the flesh? When you sow to the flesh, you're not crucifying it. You're feeding it. You're focusing on it. And notice what happens. You reap corruption. The word corruption is, is an interesting metaphor. It's, it's in the image of a rotting corpse. Think about that image for a moment. 
the more you continue to reap towards sin, the more you get rot. And eventually it's going to lead to death. So what are some ways you reap to the flesh and sow to the flesh? What are some examples of sowing to the flesh? Well, maybe it's pornography. Late at night, you stay up after your wife has gone to bed and you, you surf the internet for pornography. You reap, you're going to reap what you sow in that area. Maybe it's bitterness. You just can't bring yourself to forgive that other person because they've wounded you so deeply and you're harboring bitterness. Maybe it's you're so bent on success and climbing the corporate ladder that you don't care about anybody else and you come home and you're irritable to be around because your whole life is consumed with being a workaholic. Maybe it's you're a gossip and you're, 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 a, you're a social butterfly that likes to go around and stab people in the back because you're, un, you're not um, satisfied in yourself and you like to make yourself look better. Maybe it's materialism, greed, anything that you sow into that you're sowing into the flesh. And if you continually do that, what you will reap is corruption. On the flip side, what does he say? If you sow to the Spirit, from the Spirit you'll reap eternal life. Now what does it mean to sow to the Spirit? That means you give yourself to saturating yourself in the Scripture. That means you give yourself to prayer. That means you give yourself to um, fellowship, that you give yourself to scripture memory, that you're walking in step with the Spirit, that you're following the ways of the Lord, and as you sow those seeds, you're going to reap eternal life. Now, Paul's not talking about a works-based relation, a salvation here, that you know, the more works you do, the more chances you are to get into heaven. He's just talking about a spiritual principle of life. If you sow, that you will reap. So here's the ultimate question. What are you sowing? To whom are you sowing? Are you throwing seeds to your flesh? Or are you sowing seeds to the Holy Spirit? Because wherever you spend most of your seeds, that's going to be the harvest. It's either going to be corruption or it's either going to be eternal life. Where are you sowing? All right, number six. Let's look at the last one here. Don't give up in doing good. Look at number verse 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good. Sometimes you grow weary in doing good. Why do you grow weary? Have you ever thought about this before? You know, all the Christian friends I have are hypocritical. The church never cares about my needs. I'm never getting anywhere in my spiritual life. It seems like whatever I try to do, two steps forward, five steps back, it's not worth it anymore to be a Christian. I'm just going to throw in the towel. I'm just going to give up. Anybody ever felt that way? You just want to give up. You've gotten weary. And Paul says, don't give up. Don't get weary. Because in due season, in due season, you'll reap. Due season means God's appointed timetable, God's sovereign timetable. Sometimes you don't see immediate results, visible results, tangible results, especially when in the spiritual realm. You don't see those immediate results. Sometimes it takes a while for, for the growth to be seen, and you get discouraged. I'm not seeing the growth in my family. I'm not seeing the, 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 the growth in my, in my marriage. I'm not seeing it. I need to see it. We're so bent on seeing immediate results. You guys know William Carey. He's the father of modern missions. He went to India. 
He went to India in 1793. He was from England. Goes to India, 1793, preaches the gospel every Sunday for seven years. Not one person trusts Christ for salvation. Seven years. He writes back to his sisters in England and says, exactly, if you look at his letter, he says, I feel like a farmer that's just wasting my time. Because I look out at my field and I see a little bit of something sprouting and it turns out to be a weed. There's nothing there. But he says, I have hope that God will bring the harvest. The day after Christmas in 1800, William Carey baptized his first Hindu convert. And if you know anything about the ministry of William Carey, that launched the modern mission movement in India. That we're a product of today through our church's ministry in India. So he didn't see immediate results. He had to wait seven years. So sometimes you don't see the immediate tangible results, and that's a temptation to want to give up. And Paul says, listen, if you keep doing good, if you keep walking in the Spirit, if you keep sowing to the Spirit, you may not see immediate results, but they're going to come. You'll reap in good time. And then Paul says, do good. Do good to everyone, but especially to those who are in the household of faith. Now, he says, as you have opportunity, which just takes the burden off. You're not supposed to do good to every single person on the planet. It's as God sovereignly gives you those opportunities, as those, those circumstances present themselves. And Paul doesn't define what doing good is. You just do good to those that you come into contact with. Everybody. We're not to discriminate in who we're supposed to be good with. You don't look at that person and say, I'm going to do good to him, but I'm really not going to do good to him. You don't discriminate. But Paul does tell us to take it to another level. He does take it to the level of obligating ourselves to serve those, to love those, to do good to those who are of the household of faith, to believers. Now, why does he say that? If we can't take care of believers within our own church and do that well, how in the world are we going to do it out in the world? You see, there's a burden to take care of each other, to bear one another's burdens, to to take care of the needs of the church first. It doesn't mean we neglect the world out there, but it means that if there's somebody within the church family, within the household of God that has a need, they should be the first of the priority. We should be taking care of one another. Now, we cannot do this if we don't know each other's needs. I want to encourage you to find yourself getting involved in one of our small groups, whether it's a Sunday morning growth group, whether it's after the service going out there and finding out about a small group. You just sitting here on a Sunday morning in a worship service cannot actually let your needs be known in a way that's intimate, in a way that you can truly be ministered to and minister to others. It's only going to happen through smaller groups where you're going to be able to meet those needs. And we have a bunch of different ones you can be a part of. Men's ministry, women's, all the different ways you can do that. So are you sowing the seeds of love? Are you bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Are you walking in step with the Spirit? And are you sowing to the Spirit? So Paul's gotten very practical. Are you restoring others in a spirit of humility? Are you dealing with sin in appropriate ways? Are you bearing one another's burdens? Are you examining yourself? Are you examining yourself? Are you being faithful financially to the ministry of the church? 
Are you sharing your resources with those who teach? And are you not giving up? Are you being good, doing good to those in the church family? You see, all these really come back to humility. It takes some humility to actually put these into practice. You've got to be humble enough to examine yourself. You've got to be humble enough to, to admit failure. You've got to be humble enough to bear one another's burdens. You've got to be humble enough to, to before the Lord to sow to the Spirit. You, it requires humility. And so you need to honestly assess yourself in your life this morning. So here's a list. Paul's given us six things. I've given you six things. I can't tell you which one you need to focus on because I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't look into your heart. But you can look at this list and say, is there one or maybe two that God is bringing major conviction into my heart? There's one on here that just really spoke to me today. There's one on here today that just, it just hit me between the eyes, and, and that's where God wants me to focus. That's why you respond to God's word when he brings that conviction. So I don't want you to leave this morning. James says, when you leave this morning, you can do one of two things. You can simply be a hearer of the word and walk out of here and forget. Or you can be a hearer of the word and a doer of the word. You can walk out of here in obedience. And the only way you can do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads this morning. And I want to give you an opportunity to evaluate yourself in light of these six applications. Some time for self-reflection, self-assessment. Where's God leading you to focus? How may God be convicting you? And how is he calling you to respond? Would you spend just a few moments in silent prayer before the Lord? Father in heaven, we need your strength today to be not just hearers of the word, but doers also. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for us and you rose again for us. And you love us. Holy Spirit, thank you that you give us the power, that you've given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. May we leave this place equipped, empowered, and encouraged to obey what we've heard. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.